Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And today's guest, Dr. Carmen Simon. I'm really excited for us to spend some time together with her. She's the Chief Science Officer at Corporate Visions. Now, she's also not just the Chief Science Officer at Corporate Visions. She's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. She's a cognitive neuroscientist. And I will tell you from knowing her a little bit, it's not just about the science. It's about the application of the science. So we could call her an applied cognitive neuroscientist. She's a very well-respected and renowned keynote speaker, uh, speaks a lot on sales and marketing and communication, which you guys know is right and the things that we love to talk about here at Brain Trust. Uh, She also, in her last book, her latest book is called Impossible to Ignore. And no, it's not about a two-year-old toddler. It's actually about how to create memorable content to influence decisions. And uh, she had a company that I used to follow a lot called Mimsy, where she was they were just world-class at taking visual storytelling techniques and concepts and bringing them to life in pictures for presentations and all kinds of different fun things that you can do. And so... Uh, Carmen, welcome to the show. I can't wait to unpack your uh, expertise here and what we can learn from you today. Thank you so much and uh, welcome everyone. I'm excited to share and I really love the label that uh, you suggested around applied science because uh, what keeps me up at night and then what gets me up the following morning is the application of the practical guidelines that we can provide after we undergo neuroscience research. Yeah, what I love, and we say this all the time, uh, both inside our company and also to all of our clients, I say it when I do keynotes a lot, is, you know, you can think about what is the number one determining success factor of any human being or organization. You can think about setting goals and having the right strategy, and maybe in business it's the right product, the right people, the right culture, and, and, and those are all good answers, but none of it matters if you cannot communicate effectively. And so what I love about having you on is, is you're an expert at not just the idea, not just the information, but the application of how to communicate it. So that's what I'm really excited about uh, jumping in with. Now, I will, uh, the, the, the audience knows we always start in the same place with all of our guests. You just didn't fall off the turnip truck and decide to be a, a cognitive neuroscientist. So somewhere in your background, in your history, uh, you started to go down a path where you ended up into the, the STEM field, right? The sciences and the maths and all that and found a little bit of a, of a, uh, you, you took to neuroscience somewhere along the way. But take us the audience back to the very beginning. Tell us kind of what your upbringing was like and how you got into this field and maybe how you were attracted to this field to begin with. Tell us your why. I guess what I'm asking is, tell us your why. Thank you for uh, for taking me back there. It's not often that um, we afford ourselves this mental travel. And uh, it's satisfying sometimes when we do. Uh, my origins are uh, humble. I uh, grew up in a communist country. And uh, with communist country countries comes uh, <laughs> a few limitations of sorts. What, what is not a limitation in a communist country is education. Uh, when uh, you and I were uh, discussing this um, a while back, I was mentioning how critical school is uh, and how even more critical teachers are. In a communist regime, you are told to do some specific things and uh, you look to teachers as the greatest authority and um, you hope that you place your uh, your career in, in good hands. And of course, when you're a kid, the word career is probably not uh, not appropriate, but my parents mandated that I followed a high school that was uh, primarily math and, and uh, physics. So for six hours a day for four years, you studied mainly that. And at the time, especially when uh, you're a teenager, you're thinking and aspiring at uh, more global things, more heart-related things. I really enjoyed literature and uh, foreign languages and anything humanities but my mind was forced into the sciences, and I'm grateful for that looking back, because when you do follow science, your mind develops in such a way that it starts looking for patterns. It starts uh, appreciating precision. It starts appreciating planning and organization. And you can take those skills in anything that you do afterwards. So whoever is listening to us, whether you seek those skills for yourselves or you have children to inspire, 
I think that if you want to influence somebody else's brain, which I sense that's the essence of our session, I would say that um, organization, planning, precision, pattern recognition, our critical thinking, especially our evergreen skills that can help you in anything you do. So at some point in the journey early on, you had this, uh, you know, you could have been the next JK Rowling. You could have been this amazing author. You had this, you had this creative side to you. It sounds like, like a lot of kids in, in, in adolescence do, but then you went down a path by, in this case, not necessarily by choice, but what a wonderful blend though, because you had a, a built in natural curiosity for things like art and literature and the creative side of your brain. And then you developed into the, the more analytical side of your brain through, through some of the STEM teaching. Do you, do you look back on that now and say, you know, it's kind of almost a gift because you really got to develop both, you know, really both the creative and the, the more scientific or analytical aspects of your brain. It was a gift. I really like the label that uh, that you're giving us. Many things in life, we don't get to appreciate them until later on. And uh, I think that many people listening to us can find their own examples where at the time life gives you something and you're thinking seriously. I'll never forget the first time that I even showed up at high school and I had no idea that my dad even enrolled me in this math and physics program. And in my view, I was going to be the next uh, Nicole Kidman. Remember the movie, The Interpreter? Oh, yeah. That was going to be me. I mean, that was <laughs> Or another aspiration that I had was I was going to uh, become the next Barbara Walters. I was going to be a really solid journalist. And when that curriculum with math and, uh, and physics six hours a day hit me, I just, uh, I was a very angry. Teenagers already are troublesome anyway. <laughs> <laughs> You don't need to give them any extra, but it is a gift. And for anyone listening, if you ever find yourselves in the position to have a combination of something that indeed does have the precision and the rigor of science, but is also set with the soul of art and design, then you're giving the brain something that it craves in the sense of patterns and repetition and familiarity and the ability to predict what happens next with something else that is indeed a bit more surprising, something that it didn't expect. Perhaps there isn't always a good explanation for it. And that, that combination keeps us going. So at what point did you come over to the States? Was this for college or at what point in your life did you make that transition? It was for uh, for college. I came here for two semesters and those turned into a few more and then those turned into a few more until you start learning and getting some degrees that going back home don't necessarily uh, apply any longer or you speaking of applied science. And um, I recognize that uh, Barbara Walters was no longer possible for me because as I was listening to myself, I thought Barbara Walters does have a slight accent of sorts, but it's not as prominent as mine. So therefore I can't follow this and not do it justice. So instead I followed more on the computer track and uh, I felt that computers plus psychology equals a good formula. And um, I kept on, uh, I kept on going in that direction until I reached a point where I became very humble by how much the brain forgets. I'm sure that anyone listening right now is also very humbled by how quickly and how much we forget day by day. I was noticing that in a business setting. For instance, I was working for an organization where we would have people come in and pitch their solutions all the time. And as we were reflecting back on their uh, presentations, we were recognizing that at some point we didn't know who said what. And we tended to give credit to the more familiar source, which was unfair because whenever you create any kind of communication material, you would have spent quite a bit of effort and put quite a bit of knowledge and, uh, and sweat into it. And for somebody else to take the credit for your work, that is just not fair. So that's what I started to look more into. What is it that we remember and uh, why is it that we forget? Uh, is forgetting all that bad? And by the way, to ease the pressure, forgetting is not all bad. You couldn't have customers or be married if the brain wasn't able to forget. But at some point, it's critical to be memorable. And that's what I started studying. Well, that's what I love about your work is, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, cognitive neuroscientists and behavioral psychologists and researchers in general, and they tend to stay in either medical, healthcare, academics, where 99% of the world, we're out here trying to communicate for a living. 
and we want to be memorable and we need to be memorable because not just people who are in sales, but leaders and, and just in general, right? You want to, you kind of want to be memorable. Now to my, to my introverts out there right now are probably saying, no, no, I don't, I don't want to be memorable at all. But there's times when you definitely want to have what you said be remembered, right? And the things and the impact you want to have. What made you decide? So was it your business corporate experience here that said, Hey, I really want to go down and take my application of neuroscience down this path versus more academic or medical or healthcare? Exactly. It was the, the, the former thinking that um, as people communicate in business all the time, there will become, there will come a moment where you're thinking to yourself, I want to make this a lasting impact. Luckily, not everything has to have lasting impact. Sometimes you communicate just for a transactional reason to move things forward. But what we recognize from a neuroscientific standpoint is that the brain makes decisions based on what it remembers, not on what it forgets. And all of us at some point have the desire to influence someone's decisions, whether for personal reasons, if you want somebody to marry you, whether for professional reasons, if you want somebody to buy from you or to even believe in your ideas, you don't always have to sell something. Internally, you do a lot of presentations. Any chance you you want to uh, to have a behavior change of sorts, memory is an, an intricate element. If you understand a bit more about memory, then you understand and become humbled by how decisions are happening or not. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about that. Because I think from a biological standpoint, what I love about this field that we're in is I, I think about it in terms of the three phases of biology, physiology, and psychology. And if you can push those all together, okay. you can probably be a pretty great communicator if you understand at least a little bit about all three of those disciplines. When you talked about forgetting, I think this is important. So I'd love for you to give your expertise on, so the brain's the highest calorie consumptive organ in our body, right? So it's a high calorie, it's a high horsepower engine that's processing all the time. So a lot of times it forgets out of just sheer efficiency. And is that, does that tend to be what you found in the research? I know I'm way oversimplifying, but talk to the audience a little bit about what causes us to forget. And is it biological or is it more physiological or some combination? There are a few reasons uh, we forget, and I like where you're going for one of the causes, which is um, efficiency. If you think about how memories are formed, when you and anybody who's listening, you're exposing an audience to a message, let's just say, perhaps you have a presentation of sorts, that presentation or that message has the ability to be encoded. So that's phase one. As something is encoded and is processed by the senses, some elements will remain for a while. Not all elements because attention and, and perception are very capacitively limited. Whenever you're looking at something or hearing something, there will be some elements that will be missed. So not everything gets to be encoded. Even from things that get to be encoded, only a few things stay online. Uh, there's a process called working memory. So you're maintaining some elements uh, alive. And if there is enough repetition and enough consolidation at that point and maintenance, then later on, there comes the stage of retrieval. Sometimes we speak about memories in terms of encoding them for us communicators, for example, but we're not humble enough to talk about the retrieval phase because just because you said something and somebody may have encoded it doesn't mean that actually even retrieved it. So at retrieval, you hope that something stayed long-term where the brain now is able to release it in some way, say it back to somebody, write it down in a, in a way. What happens in that consolidation and maintenance phase is often obviously beyond our, uh, our control. Let's uh, talk about for a moment um, around uh, the element of sleep. Sleep helps with the consolidation of memories. Memories are not formed instantly. And when people start to become sleep deprived, uh, when there's a, a certain amount of stress, for example, we can talk about uh, alcohol and some drugs <laughs> that people may, all of those will impact the way that some memories can get consolidated or, uh, or not. So various pathways uh, for those of us listening or pondering this. Let's just think about things that we can control because you won't be able to control the amount of sleep that somebody gets, uh, how some proteins are released or not to help that consolidation. But what you can influence is the encoding phase. And one of the reasons, since we're talking about applied science and practical guidelines, one of the reasons people forget is because of interference, meaning that there are so many elements that look like many other elements to the point where at retrieval, the brain will not know, was it A or was it B? Or was it something else that I that I saw? 
So to guard around interference, make sure that you use something that is distinct enough from something that people may have seen elsewhere. In business, for example, there are so many messages like that look like many other messages that is no wonder that people forget that it was you who said it, not somebody else who uh, who said it. I remember I used to do this test with a, with an organization, so I would take their message. And then take three other messages from their competitors, put them all on one slide, and then say, pick yours. And people would have a a hard time distinguishing their own message. So that's a test that you can do for yourself, especially if you operate in a competitive environment. Look to see, do you have enough distinctiveness to guard against interference? I love that. And I, I share that same passion. I think as many times and I hear uh, customers of ours, clients of ours will say, well, these are our differentiators. So those of us in a business world know the world di- differentiator. And, and I will look at it and go, well, I think based on what I know about encoding and retrieval, uh, I would call those sameators, not differentiators. Because the, the brain of the people you're communicating to, they see it as the same. And it's the bottle of water with a different label, right? It's not really looked upon as very different and distinct. Therefore, when it comes time for decision-making, I am going to not be able to distinguish. Therefore, I'm either going to give credit to somebody who doesn't deserve it, or I'm going to commoditize everybody and ask for the lowest price. Exactly. And that tends to happen quite often, right? It tends to uh, to happen quite often. And uh, the brain is an efficient organ, very much like uh, you called it. We look to conserve energy because the brain has to justify its existence for consuming so much of our uh, energy. And uh, we can serve by uh, grouping things into the same category, like uh, like you said. We can serve by not necessarily giving our full attention. I want to debunk a myth where people say, "Well, I wasn't attentive or not paying a hundred percent of attention." You, all of your attention goes a hundred percent somewhere. The question is where. So if you're showing something that is not attention attention worthy, it's not that people don't pay attention. They'll just pay attention to something else. Right. (laughs) So as you're thinking about this encoding phase that you can take control over, already we established um, distinctiveness as a practical guideline. Let's uh, discuss for a moment, what is it that can even capture full attention to your stimulus versus something else? And when it comes to attention, there are various pathways to it because there are various attention types. But one, which we call a bottom-up type of attention, it comes from this ability to force the brain to look. I know that's a strong verb. But if you use physical properties of stimulation, like, for example, uh, a brighter color or a more distinct color, since we're talking about distinctiveness, um, something that is bigger or smaller than what the brain is expecting to see, something that is moving versus something that is static, All of these physical properties of stimulation have the ability to get the brain at least to look and force it to look for a while. So as you reflect on your own materials or ways of communicating, start observing patterns that are happening in your own industries and that you know your audience's brains are accustomed to and break it. So people are used to seeing something that is just fully colorful all the time. What if you were to change to a grayscale? that uh, it captures and and takes people by uh, surprise. If things uh, appear all in large scale all at once, then perhaps something becomes much smaller and that will get attention. The good news for all of us is that there is no right or wrong stimulus in terms of its properties. It's a matter of looking for patterns and having the courage to deviate temporarily. And that's what ensures that the brain at least looks. So can I summarize everything you just said in two words? Contrast captivates. Yes, absolutely. And if we uh, link it to what you said earlier in terms of the brain being uh, cognitively efficient, the reason this type of contrast that you're detecting works is because contrast is a shortcut to thinking. So to add a smaller guideline to the one that we were discussing, as you're summarizing it as contrast, just make sure that it's not just any kind of contrast, but it's perceptible contrast. What we're noticing in business messaging, especially, is that contrast is sometimes wishy-washy. This is why you're saying that people think they have a differentiator, but they indeed do not, because the difference between A and B is very small. I know that as scientists, we like some precision and we love numbers. Um, Think about a 30% contrast in what you do versus what somebody else does. And I know that 30% might be a little bit harder to quantify in some fields, but if I wanted to make sure that if I show you a color, 
and then I want you to distinguish it from another color, I would make sure that there's a 30% difference in its intensity and its uh, um, uh, impact. And it's, uh, if it's a shape also, perhaps in the positioning of it, it might be at a 30 angle, 30 degree angle difference or a sound, it would be 30% louder. There's got to be a perceptible contrast, not just any kind of contast. That's great. So it's a, and you found it, it's really a, there's the 30% kind of becomes a threshold. So 30% different in one direction or another based on the variations that you're trying to create. I love it. Minimal, minimal. Minimal, right. And the, the greater, the better, right? From a standpoint. The courage for greater. Now you're merging into that shocking, provocative realm and not everybody likes or can afford to go there. But if you can, and if it's temporary, you're not jolting the brain too much, then uh, why not? So courageous contrast captivates. I had to add a word to it. I love my alliteration, Carmen. Um, so what role does, because I know a lot of the latest research over the last, really the last 30 years, particularly the last 10 or 15, it seems like, shows how powerful the role of emotion is in the decision-making process. And it's almost like uh, from a, an encoding and, and, a, and a filing and a retrieval standpoint, that, that all of a sudden emotion almost adds a little bit of gas to the decision-making fire. And I'm probably oversimplifying it here, but I'd love for your explanation on the role emotion plays in both attention, but ultimately the ability to retrieve, because we can get into all kinds of fun stuff with storytelling, we will, but just conceptually first, how, what role does emotion play in this encoding and retrieval process and attention and, and, and decision-making? Yeah, let's uh, reflect on this uh, for uh, for a bit. I like where you're taking us. And um, so far, we have established some um, guidelines that will enable you to influence people's memories. So we talked about distinctiveness. We talked about attention, especially in terms of the bottom-up attention, manipulating some physical properties of your stimulation and uh, as a subset contrast. Uh, repetition is another variable that comes up when memory is concerned because repetition is the mother of memory. But in addition to repetition, no other variable is talked about more in the literature of memory than emotion. So I'm glad that you're taking us on that path. For scientists, it's important to pick up some terms that are possible to measure because when people say emotion, we just have to be careful because what emotion means to one person may not necessarily mean the same thing to somebody else. As a cognitive neuroscientist, my specialty is to use um, EEG technology, electroencephalogram caps, and um, electrodes to capture the brain's reaction to stimulation and to record the brain waves that get generated in reaction to stimulation. And I also capture an ECG signal, an electrocardiogram, when the business brain is exposed to stimulation. So a combination of those two signals give me the possibility to reflect on two emotion variables that in our view rest at the foundation of all other emotional states. This is a strong statement, so I'll be careful to define what I mean. Those two variables are valence, meaning how much the brain enjoys an experience. And the other dimension is arousal, meaning how alert and awake the brain is in the moment. And if you now picture a quadrant, so with valence being on the horizontal axis, that could be positive or negative. Vertical axis is arousal that can be high or low, because sometimes you're really amped up about a piece of communication, something you're watching, and sometimes you may be a bit nonchalant. Now, those two independent, by the way, neurophysiological states rest of the foundation of all others. So for instance, you may imagine an upper right quadrant where the valence is positive and the arousal is high. That means you're really amped up about an experience that you enjoy. Think about uh, downhill skiing. Think about, uh, I don't know, what would be upper right quadrant for you? Something that you're really amped up about and you just really love the heck out of it. So hitting that perfect eight iron on a par three and watching it go as a hole in one into your into your golf shot, right? That gives me I'm upper right quadrant all day on that, Carmen. There you go. And as you're hitting your perfect golf shot, it is very hard to think. I wonder what's for dinner. Like if you right. really enjoy that moment so much and you're so amped up about it, for me it would be a similar shot in tennis, for example. I'm hitting that downhand back that uh, downhand back the line, um, back and down the line. I just can't possibly think of anything else. Now, as our listeners are listening to this, or perhaps some are, are watching, let's go to the lower right quadrant. The experience is positive, but now you can be very relaxed. You can be nonchalant about it. What is what is that for you, by the way? Oh, um, so, it's, so what's the state here? So it's low valence. 
it's it's and, has low positive valence, so you're enjoying it, but you don't have to be so amped up about. Oh, it. we're bottom right. We're bottom right. Yes. Okay, so I'm high I'm high valence but low arousal. Um, you know that's that's probably a uh, maybe like even just a dinner with the family, right? Just hanging out, very. Yeah. yeah. So we usually when I ask that question, people will go for reading your favorite books. They're still yeah. kind of engaged, but easy. You're not jumping up and down on uh, on that on a dirt bike, for example. Um, right screaming for your life. Now we go lower left quadrant. That means that there is negative valence, but you're not amped up about it. And usually when I mention that people think about completing their expense reports, you're kind of not enjoying it, but you're not uh, up with anger. Right. Uh, you're still going, doing laundry perhaps, or doing dishes that would be lower left. A lot of task oriented things probably there, right? And especially work related. Yeah. <laughs> Upper left, that means you have the negative valence and high arousal. That is when you're flirting with annoyance and anger. So going to the DMV, perhaps, or being stuck in traffic, uh, a lot of political discussion might get up there. I was going to say all all of our politics go in that bucket, right? (laughs) So now that we have this emotional circumplex, which, by the way, has been around in psychology for, uh, for many decades, what has changed for us from a neuroscientific perspective is that we're able to capture people's EEG and ECG signals and place them against this emotional circumplex. So when you ask about emotion and how it impacts memory and decision-making, we now have sharper tools and some frameworks through which to quantify this and say, look, when you're talking about your value proposition and your that differentiator we were mentioning, your audience tends to be in this lower left quadrant, which is where memories go to die because boredom is there. (laughs) Or (laughs) when you talk about uh, trends in the industry, which a lot of people in their sales pitches would do, notice how the brain is in that upper left, like you're getting people amped up in a negative way, which is not all bad, by the way, because some some fear or some anger sometimes do propel us into action and the emotion is much stronger. So the the good news for all of us in business and as you're appealing to the business brain is is that now we have sharper tools and, uh, and frameworks to capture this. In terms of practical guidelines, here's what I can say do what we can to uh, to avoid that lower left quadrant and don't feel that a negative emotion as long as it provokes a reaction is all bad as long as it's temporary yeah i like it we have it's funny we have a matrix that we talk about it's we call it the trust matrix right it's different it's connection on the x and, and credibility on the y slightly different but the the idea <clears throat> excuse me the idea of Connecting is an emotional thing and, and that's processed in the brain in a very different level, which would be higher arousal, uh, where credibility is really that idea of I'm activating more of that analytical network. So you run the risk of communicating too much information. It drops people's arousal and their valence, right? At some point, they tune out. And I, what my question, I guess, would, for you on this is, is fascinating to me is, is the, is it, is it a linear progression on the more emotion someone feels associated with information that's being communicated, the more easy it is to encode it with memories that aren't short-term but become more long-term, which are easier to retrieve later. Is that am I, am I over overgeneralizing? I, I like where we're going in terms of the impact of emotion on um, on long, long-term memories. And um, whenever you have a very strong emotion at encoding, you're increasing the chances for a memory to be formed. Uh, increasing the chances being the key phrase, because you might sometimes have a strong emotion, but because people weren't attentive to what you're saying mm-hmm. or showing, and they were looking at something else and checking their phones, they may have, uh, they may have missed it. So just maybe that's why attention and that encoding phase and prompting the brain to even look to uh, capture your more emotional intense moment is mandatory. And um, quite often we remind people from a practical perspective to make sure that if you have some segments that are critical for people to remember, that you get the brain ready. So if you have some of the stronger emotionally infused components don't just distribute them randomly across your communication sequence. Reserve them for the moment prior to what they must remember. That's called priming the brain. Pretty much like you would prime a wall with paint. Use something because surely as you're reflecting on your own content, very unlikely that everything in there is emotionally intense. Am I correct in making that? Uh, that Absolutely. Assumption? 
Because people are not, unless people listening create some Hollywood movies or some uh, scripts for novels where you can amp the emotional intensity through the nature of the content. In business, it's a little bit harder. There isn't so much emotion around governance software or or analytics. You have to go and, and seek it. Once you find those components, cherish them and put them right before a moment that you want to be making memorable. So practically speaking, priming would be such a, such a technique. So you're prime of getting the brain ready. Another technique you'll enjoy is something that um, eases the pressure for all of us to think that, well, what, what if I didn't do a good job at encoding? Is everything lost? And the good news is that not everything is lost because the brain is smart enough to pay attention to some elements, but it still kind of keeps track of some peripheral elements. Not everything dissipates in fog and is gone forever. And what some recent studies have showed is that even if at encoding, you may have missed some elements that you made prominent, after the fact, as long as you add some emotion around those peripheral elements that may have been missed, it's possible to rescue some memories and bring them back to life. So let's just say that there are three components that you wanted people to take away. You're noticing that they only remember one. The other two are not fully lost unless you can connect them to something emotional and keep reminding uh, those that listen to you a little bit later on around those, uh, those adjacent things. I love it. That's what, and we talk, we call it the emotion coaster here that you communicate. Yes. And but basically you're just, from a scientific standpoint, you, you're talking about the priming. Uh, we call it the emotion coaster, right? If I'm going to activate your emotional network, then I need to do it on purpose. And I'm not going to activate your analytical network until I want you now primed with emotion to that now evaluate and analyze something memorable and then keep taking you on that journey inside out, inside out, inside out. Um, I love that. I mean, I love the new technology, the new tools, and you're you're doing an amazing job using these to help understand this. But speak to a little bit around attention doesn't always lead to action, does it? So there's a sometimes you can do a great job of getting attention, but it may not lead someone to actually take action. What what happens in that big gap <laughs> where that doesn't happen? And quite often, it's a bigger gap than uh, than we would like. I'm enjoying this uh, discussion immensely, and um, here's some um, parameters for all of us to consider. And it all starts with this notion of uh, giving the brain rewards because the brain takes bribes and uh, there's just no easy way of, uh, of saying Wait, that. wait, the, the brain's a politician? <laughs> very, <laughs> very much so in the sense of if you want me to do something for you, the brain will say, you have to do something in return for me. And what have you done for me lately? Let's think of it that way. And from a neuroscience perspective, let's consider these two terms, which sometimes are taken interchangeably, but they're not. Uh, Let's look at liking and wanting something. Because we talk about rewards, we talk about the, the brain seeking some pleasure of sorts, which is its own way of producing more of our own species. Because the only reason we, uh, we, we exist and do things is so we can more make more of ourselves. And on that journey, we have discovered that if things are made pleasurable, then we increase the chance for that evolution to continue. So pleasure is nature's bold trick for our species to make more of itself. So we associate some rewards that obviously give us pleasure and rewards come from different sources and they are of different types. There is something that you can give to the brain and it likes it. Now, the liking network in the brain is very feeble. It is, uh, it's much smaller compared to the wanting network that I'll speak about in a moment. The chemical currency for liking is uh, opioids and cannabinoids. Uh, I'm sure that our audience members right now are not the kinds that consume the external type, but your brain has its own internal ph- pharmacy. You may have heard of people who consume those kinds of <laughs> chemicals externally. Uh, Dope, uh, the, uh, the other network wanting, which I could really want something very badly is a lot stronger of a network. It's much bigger. And the chemical currency for wanting is dopamine. That is a chemical that I would suggest for anyone listening to this to study a little bit more in detail. It's been around for a while. It's almost overly popularized. We used to call it the Kim Kardashian of neurotransmitters, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I don't think is fair to, uh, to dopamine. <laughs> dopamine used to... <laughs> That's dopamine, great. Dopamine used to be linked to something that... Uh, that we crave and we like, and, and sure, to a certain degree, it uh, it is so. 
Um, it is uh, connected to our reward, our pleasure centers, sure. But the more recent findings tell us that dopamine is not something that um, you need in order to like and crave chocolate, for instance. You don't need dopamine to like and crave it. You need dopamine to go get it. Dopamine is the molecule that puts the brain and the body into action. That was the uh, the question that you have. Why is it that people don't act? So quite often, we don't have enough of that uh, that chemical associated with a specific thing to say, you know what, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to get up and just go and do it. So as you're thinking about liking and wanting, it's very nice for you to give the brain both. Obviously, you would hope that everything you create, somebody else's brains likes and, uh, and craves. One of the ways to tap more into both the liking and the, and the craving, the wanting of it all, is to make something very vivid, ideally associated with a cue. Because if you think about it, if you're hungry and you drive by a billboard that has this juicy hamburger and you're thinking, ah, I really want one of those. That image is so vivid and obviously associated with some cues. And when when we look at business communication, so much of it is just a, a faded version of what it could be. People enjoy some stock photography. People enjoy some polished designs. That's fine. But at some point, whenever you develop something that makes me feel like I'm all, almost have it, I can feel its texture, I'm almost there, then you're building into this vividness and uh, you're tapping a little bit more into the wanting stage versus just, oh, I kind of like it, but don't necessarily have to have it. So how do you juxtapose that? Because I love that idea of, okay, so we got the wanting network, dopamine. I love how you, you articulate it as the currency. I like that. That's, that's a great term. And I heard that before. Uh, and then you've got the the liking side with the cannabinoids and the and the others, opioids, we thought about that, right? How do you juxtapose those two networks with the idea that a lot of the research, maybe you would say it's outdated, I don't know, that shows that humans will tend to take action at twice the urgency to avoid a loss than they will to pursue a gain. A lot of Kahneman Traversky work, right, back in the prospect theory. How do you juxtapose that? Because really almost three different things, right? You've got the, the wanting and the liking, but then over here you've got the avoidance of loss, which tends to get me to take action a little more urgently, which how's that all kind of play into together? They play, they play into each other because they are all under the umbrella of obtaining a reward. And the reward can come from approaching something that you really like and crave. Usually it's something that you crave. Sometimes you don't necessarily even have to like it. But the reward can also come from withdrawing from something that is still rewarding. And often the reward is greater when we withdraw from something that could have done us more harm. So it's still a measure of, uh, of reward, regardless of it, the, the brain is operating on chemicals. It doesn't necessarily know where it's coming, <laughs> where, right, right. Where it's coming from. It's, it's a reward nonetheless. But I want us to focus a lot more on this notion of how can we get that um, the dopamine buzz is a little bit of a, an unusual phrase, not necessarily accurate because dopamine operates on schedules. So you're and, and it's all dependent on a baseline, by the way. So whatever could be exhilarating and, and exciting and somewhat addicting for you might not necessarily be the same for me. So this is why the adage, know your audience, I would change that from a neuroscience perspective to say, know your audience's baselines for what you're advocating. Because according to that, you will then give their brains a mean to even recognize if something else that you're giving them is better or worse than. So for example, if people are used to uh, getting uh, crappy slides, um, disorganized information, something that doesn't always make sense, that's their baseline. So anything that you give them that's above that, the brain codifies it as a reward prediction error, meaning that anytime I meet with you, I have some sort of expectations. I'm, I'm predicting what happens next. And oh, look at that. I got something better than I expected. So my prediction was wrong. Therefore, reward prediction error. And whenever I'm getting something that is better than, not only am I enjoying that moment, that's a liking moment, but then that's also a memory moment because the brain tells itself, remember this moment. This is a moment of learning. And next time we know how to, uh, how to handle it. So anyone listening right now, just know that you can be a choreographer of somebody's dopamine baseline. 
there is a sentence I never said before. <laughs> we'll go back and check the tape on that one. We want to write that one down. Uh, great. So I got a couple other quick topics I want to cover. I know you've been gracious with your time and we really appreciate it. I could do this for three hours. I love this stuff. You talked at one point about, and I don't know if this has been updated through any of the research or not, about how the brain decides based on three different ways, reflexive, habitual, and goal orientation. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Because I think that kind of goes in line with everything you're talking about uh, to, to this point. Definitely so. And uh, we can link it to what we were just talking about in terms of liking something and, and wanting it. Quite often, those uh, approach behaviors are based on reflexes. For example, I know to withdraw from a hot surface simply because thousands of years of evolution have been telling us that skin is instrumental to our survival. So therefore, the reward is in not getting injured and withdrawing from that element. In business, as you're listening to this, if you're wondering, well, how can I appeal more to reflexes because I know that I will get the brain to act? There are some other primary reinforcers, we call them, meaning that they are wired in the brain, they are subconscious, they're not learned, and we know that the brain reacts reflexively to sweet taste, bitter taste, uh, the toddler that you mentioned in the beginning of, uh, of the show and the, the cry, that crying infant, you cannot ignore it. Um, we react reflexively to beauty, you see, to youth, to uh, controlling the environment, to altruism. So some elements that you can control in terms of practical guidelines will be to provide the brain, for example, with the promise of controlling its own environment. So anyone listening to this, if you're working on some services or products that put somebody else in better control of their own environment, that's a strong appeal to a reflex and you increase the chances of, of action. Aesthetics is a huge one because, and, and aesthetics is not just in the, in the eyes of the beholder, like uh, a beauty. There are some tangible guidelines. You mentioned contrast already is one. Uh, proximity, whenever you're grouping like elements together, the brain finds it easier and faster to process those. Uh, unity, for instance, whenever you're mentioning things that are around the same theme, the brain doesn't have to work so hard. Uh, hierarchy is a huge one, especially when it comes to communication. Sometimes people don't pay attention and don't remember because they don't understand how one message is an umbrella message and a few others are subsets. So there you have it in terms of practical guidelines just for reflexes. Think about um, promising to control the environment. Think about uh, using some aesthetic principles to make communication uh, easier and faster to process. And altruism is also one that can be trickled into communication because you always speak to audiences that have audiences. So if you can promise that however people engage with you, they will then be in better service to someone else. It takes the brain more energy to ignore an appeal to altruism than it does to uh, to indulge it. So in the reflexive piece, it's a lot of that instinctive, creating environments of instinctive reactions based on a lot of times self-preservation, safety, control, altruism. Exactly. Yes. Uh, okay, yes. great. And so that's where reflexes and the advantage there is that you do not tax the brain's cognitive capacity, which sometimes it is limited. We move next to habits, which is another pathway to decision-making. We know that people will act again and again and again based on some rewards that have served them well in the past. Unlike reflexes, habits are conscious, at least at first. So if you take a habitual route to work, for example, the moment that you establish that initially, you have to think about it. But then the more that that route serves you well in the sense of you can go on autopilot, you don't necessarily have to think about it anymore. And as you're thinking about convincing people to change, a mistake that many make is that they're asking for too many changes all at once instead of linking something new to something that feels familiar and habitual to the brain. So always ask the question, can I find at least some habits that my audience has and they are good ones? It serves them well. It serves me well. And can I link this new thing that I want them to do to that one versus starting from scratch? It's possible to start from scratch, but if you start from some sense of usable or user-friendly familiarity, then you have a higher chance to action because given the choice to think or not to think, the brain would rather not. <laughs> well, isn't it also a piece of safety? So if I'm already linking something you're asking me to do to something I'm already doing, I've already made a decision to do that, therefore it's safe. Whereas if you're starting completely over, there's a much higher degree of risk subconsciously in my mind of doing something completely new. 
Think about the key phrase that you just said, which is uh, which is risk. The brain is an outstanding and very advanced predictive engine. We we wouldn't have evolved unless we sharpened our predictive skills all the time. And the moment that you are anticipating where to go next, there's the only reason we have a brain even is to move. So how we know to move next and what to do next, move towards or away from something like you were saying, that means I have to watch for my predictive accuracy for the prediction error that we're mentioning. So what you do by linking to habits that serve people well is that you're feeding their need for uh, accurate prediction. Predictability. Yeah. I love it. Okay. And then the last one, goal-oriented. For goal-oriented, luckily, we also have that pathway to make decisions because if we're only abiding by reflexes and habits, we would not evolve. (laughs) At some point, the brain does uh, does have to think. And for the thinking of it all and for setting goals, which is so prevalent in business, what do we do? We appeal to people's goals and we say, think about this one and think about this way and strategize in this uh, in this direction, forgetting the automatic nature, by the way, of reflexes and habits. So practical guideline number one would be to not rely on goal-oriented thinking so much. Always bring in a bit more of the reflexes and the habits if you can. If you cannot, make sure that you connect it with other guidelines that we talked about in the sense of what reward are you giving to the brain for making it think and making it give you some of its energy that is not always plentiful. Rewards can come in many shapes and sizes. Luckily, there isn't an infinite amount of rewards that you can give. What is it that the business brain, for example, craves? I'm sure that in your sessions, you probably teach many of, uh, of those, but um, we cannot uh, ignore the promise of, you already mentioned it, safety, convenience. We cannot uh, ignore the promise of uh, something that uh, is uh, making us feel joyful. I wish business would appeal to that even more frequently than, uh, than it does, because the promise of joy is, is a strong one, is a strong reward. That's great. So, all right, last question, then, and it'll be the first cousin of joy. Um, I want to know what you think. My team's probably going to, and they don't want me to ask this question, the role of effective humor in decision-making and maybe likeness, connection, all of that fun stuff. Because you've done a little bit of work there, I think, in the past. Yes. Um, and since we like quadrants, I just, I love quadrants. Um, I always like to look at the intersection of things because humor by itself, is that useful? We have to ask that question. And to me, since I specialize in memory, I've been thinking about humor at the intersection of something that's funny versus not funny. And then using another uh, variable, which is memorable versus not memorable. Love it. So see, now you have these quadrants of something. Ideally, I'm sure that people aspire at being funny and memorable. That's a good spot to be because if you have used humor well and people remember it, which is not easy, by the way, we think that, oh, I'm just, I said something funny and for sure it will live on and it does not. Uh, then you have a good thing going on. So if you, if you consider humor, practice it, uh, test it out and make sure that people actually remember it because otherwise not only will they forget it, but because you said something funny in the moment, some adjacent elements may have been missed. Do you ever watch a funny ad and then you try to say it to somebody else, but then you totally forgot who created that ad? Right, right. <laughs> like, Maybe- remember the pig, and the pig is driving this convertible and he whips out this mobile phone and he shows you the insurance that he has. And it's, it's kind of a, a cutesy little moment. But when he says, so what insurer was that? Right. And then if you don't remember, then that's a, that's a moment of funny, but not memorable. I love the quadrants also because it is possible to be memorable without being humorous. So we can decrease the pressure. You don't always have to be, uh, to be funny. Uh, the worst is when, when you're not funny and you're forgettable. So. <laughs> I think you might've just tapped into my entire problem. Like, like my, the bane of my entire existence, Carmen, is I'm funny. I think I'm funny and I'm not memorable. So I need to work on getting myself in a new quadrant. <laughs> we, we all aspire that, but the, the humility for that comes from telling jokes. And here's a test that we can all do. Listen to your favorite stand-up comedian. Uh, they will have like a Netflix special, for example. And um, then a day later, reflect on which segments did you enjoy the most? 
And that humbling moment will tell you that if you indeed want to be funny and memorable, there are a few elements to uh, to work on. And all of the guidelines that we talked about today, by the way, apply. So we were talking about uh, uh, distinctiveness, a good memorable moment that also has some humor is distinct from anything else you have uh, you have heard contrast big component for a, for, for, for a human offering a sort of a, a reward that the brain likes and it wants, it craves in a sense, huge component of there, some, uh, some aesthetically pleasing elements. Quite often humor has parallel structures or things that fit in just, uh, just right. So all these guidelines would apply. That's great. And the one topic I, I feel like I'm remiss we didn't get to today because it ties all this together in a lot of ways is you know, the art of visual storytelling. And I, I think about, as you were saying that about the comedian, you know, great communicators can elicit emotion with, with visualization that anchors into your own memory retrieval, which makes it much easier for you to then a day later tell that joke because it was a story joke that talked about the green barn and talked about the, you know, the, the pig and the, and the cell phone and the red car and the going 60 miles an hour on the speedometer. So, the more you can tie all these together, I think it becomes easier to retrieve those from your own memory, right? Because you're creating that picture yourself versus what was necessarily told in storytelling. But that's a whole nother episode if we get into storytelling, right? Yes, let's uh, let's do exactly that because uh, you summarize it just uh, just so context and especially a physical context is not what we remember, it's how we remember, mm. which is why those uh, comedians or great storytellers are indeed memorable for uh, for some time because they make you feel as if you were there. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'd love to have you back on again sometime if you're open to it. So let's talk about, uh, let's tell the audience where they can find and learn more about you. I know your, your last book, where you mentioned at the beginning, Impossible to Ignore, Creating Memorable Content to Influence Decisions. Now, I said it at the beginning, and you probably weren't paying attention because both your valence and your emotion was down on that, right? So now that you've heard from Carmen for almost an hour, you're probably super excited. you got high valence with some high you know, emotion associated with it. Go get the book, right? You're going to learn a lot more there. I think you can get that on Amazon and probably all bookstores, correct? Yes, uh, definitely so. And um, join us um, for uh, this um, research and advisory practice uh, that's called B2B Decision Labs. This is the uh, research arm for corporate visions, and it's where we publish all the scientific findings um, uh, for business uh, brains. So if you are in business and you like to communicate in a way that indeed attracts attention and impacts memory and decisions, you might enjoy some of those science-based reports. So great B2B Decision Labs and then uh, the corporate size, corporatevisions.com. Uh, you can go into the about um, and just find Dr. Carmen Simon on there. She's on Big Speak. She's on all kinds of speaking bureaus. I mean, she speaks all the time. So you can probably see why I had, wanted to have her on today. Uh, what an amazing guest. What a brilliant woman. Great story and just somebody that I've admired. And now I can see why my audience is going to want to follow you as well. Thank you so much for being our guest. And I look forward to having you on the show again real soon. Thank you, Jeff. It would be a pleasure. Hey, friends. This is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian jiu-jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.